Over the past year or so, we've been hearing a lot about inflation. At times, it's been hard to open up a newspaper, turn on the TV, or fire up social media without having a percentage thrust in one's face in a way which seems to suggest we should be deeply worried. In interviews, bankers, politicians, and union leaders alike all seem highly anxious about whether inflation will continue to rise or whether it can be tamed. But what exactly is inflation? What exactly does it mean to say that inflation is at 8%, 9%, 10%? What causes it? What ripples does it send through the economy? And what can we do about it? To try and get a better handle on things, I got in touch with economist and creator Unlearning Economics and put a few questions to him. Okay, uh, Yui, thank you very much for being uh, willing to give up a bit of your afternoon today to come on and uh, chat to me. How are you? Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. I'm very good, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. How are you? Uh, yeah, no, an, an all right day so far. Currently, sort of hard at work at the next video, but um, all is sort of going okay, which is nice. Uh, but sometimes <laughs> feels like if things are going too well, it feels like disaster might be around the corner. Sometimes, so uh, you're in the happy maybe medium I should be at the moment. <laughs> I think maybe I'm just too much of a pessimist. Maybe, um, but so I asked you. I asked you on because like. Uh, everywhere I look, well, everywhere I have looked over the like last six, seven, eight, nine, maybe a bit more months, um, inflation has been like the big thing in the news. Um, generally, like initially that it was going up a lot and very quickly, and then it seems to have sort of peaked sort of, it was about halfway through last year, I think, did it peak? And then it's um, like, well, it seemed, it seemed like it might have, um, although it's now kind of going up again. Ooh. So uh, it, yeah, it, it sort of it sort of plateaued around around maybe eight percent. But to be honest, it's just kept gradually going up. Now it's been, it's been going up at like a decreasing rate, right? So it's like mm. it jumped with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then it kind of um, it's sort of been going up a decreasing rate ever since then but uh yeah i mean it depends on which country you look at as well i'm talking about the uk um in the us i think there might be more evidence of a peak um and it also depends on like which measure you use uh so i mean we can get into some of that i don't want to jump straight into all those yeah no 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 yeah no it'd be great to, it'd be great to get into like how how do you measure it uh hmm. as well later on um i mean i suppose the like i feel like inflation is one of those things that lots of us know something about like we've got like one thing that we can like hold on to i was thinking about like you know i know that you have to use an inflation calendar to say that you know ten thousand pounds in a jane austen novel is not ten thousand pounds in 2023 right that means like they're sure. rich then um or like a, a pint is 13p or whatever in the, the 1970s and now it's you know you you you're pretty happy if it's under a fiver um, but like, what are, what exactly are we talking about? I guess to start from like the most basic question, like what are we, what, what are we talking about when we talk about inflation? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, 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 I think you've grasped that it's actually not that basic a question um, because inflation can be thought of in a lot of different ways. Uh, but I think when we, you know, when economists kind of try to talk about inflation, 
what they're trying to say is exactly what you pointed out with your Jane Austen example, which is that, you know, a pound, a dollar, a yen is worth less now. It can buy you fewer goods and services than it could in the past. Um, so, you know, that that is at, it's at the base. It's the sort of bare bones theory of inflation, right? Um, that's what we're trying to capture with these measures. Um, now, when you get into actual measurement, as in like what you see on the news mm-hmm. um, and what you see the, the the Office for National Statistics measure, then they can't really truly know this because, you know, it depends on things like what are you going to buy, right? Everybody, everybody buys... Yeah. Everybody buys different things. Uh, things which are very similar can be different prices depending on the location. So a good example in the UK that people always go on about is is the pint, right? You know, a pint of beer in London is obviously very expensive compared probably, to a pint of beer. Probably says something about us culturally that that is the thing that we're like most most concerned about above all else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, that yeah. So there's that. There's also the Freddo that people talk about a lot mm. uh, with regards to price increases, and the Big Mac, um, which is maybe a bit more of an American thing. But yeah, like so, you know, we we don't we can't gather data on all of the price movements. We can't know exactly how much of everything everybody is buying. Um, so what what they end up doing at the ONS and every single statistical agency throughout the world is they just have to say, okay, these are the you know six hundred or so most commonly purchased goods and services let's measure the average price of these um, and see how it goes up so you're looking at this what they call a basket right so it's like a hypothetical Mm. basket of the average representative consumer in the uk and things go in and out of that like basket before because they sometimes talk about like a new thing has been like i don't know when I was growing up, like the iPhone probably got added to that basket mm, at some mm. point and like VHS tapes got taken out. Um, Do you remember mini disc players? Yes, I never yeah. had one. I sort of like, no. I, I had tapes and then I had CDs and I think I like never quite, I, I was obviously like had a good good enough CD player or whatever when mini discs had their sort of brief. It, it was a very brief moment in the sun, but they, they were in the uh, the CPI basket and they got taken out at some point um in the in the late 2000s i think or maybe early 2010s That's um, really recent yeah the thing i was thinking about for for international anyone listening not in the uk uh friday frog is like a, a sort of little chocolate bar that looks like a kind of more and like a frog but not like a frog if you're i don't know how to explain friday frog it's a cartoon oh, frog isn't it it looks cartoon like a cartoon frog, frog. um and yeah for some so... reason they are culturally very important to the british people and they have to be cheap well, the, no, uh, okay, so so let's talk about the Freddo because it's actually a good way <laughs> of illustrating this. Um, yeah, the, the conversation is getting good. Um, so, like, the Freddo was, it was always 10p um, from when it was released in 1994 um, for at least a decade. It was 10p. So everybody knew, especially when you were a kid, like we were at the time, right, that you could mm. you could always guarantee yourself a little frog, cartoon frog-shaped bar of chocolate for 10p. Um, but eventually, you know, the price of it went up. As we said, you know, the price of everything goes up and the Freddo eventually followed suit. And there was a lot of outrage around that when it was first uh, increased the price, I think, in uh, 2007 to 15p. Then they put it up to 17p for some weird reason and then 20 And now it's like 25p. 
Um, so it's a good it's a good indicator of like how of inflation, I think, the Freddo, um, and how basically the price of everything. Well, not everything, but you know, the price of most things it tends to increase. I, I did not expect you to have such a sort of rich seam of Freddy Frog based knowledge, but uh, that, that's all I know. If we we can't talk about anything else, that's all I've got. It's all Freddos. But I, uh, I think I think the point you made was really interesting. It was about like actually inflation is really different for different people depending mm. on what you buy. Like I mean, I guess there's there's things that most of us buy. Um, yeah. Like I guess one of I one of the things that I you might tell me I'm wrong, but that I take it that has been quite influential in this sort of jump in inflation has been like oil and gas. And I guess we're all impacted by that because we need to heat our homes or we need to drive cars. Or if we're not driving cars, maybe we get public transport and the price maybe gets tripled on. But mm. I thought that was really interesting that actually, you know, there can be certain things that you might buy. Uh, I've got uh, I've got a friend who likes to talk about the um, uh, the cost of Warhammer crisis uh the uh the 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 trending cost of like a pack of orcs or whatever it is uh like for him that is the thing that is the freddo frog that has been going up yeah yeah the canary in the coal mine yeah but that's that's really interesting that and so they have to sort of get these baskets so when we hear that headline figure what we're actually hearing is like your sort of average person whatever that might be Mm. um uh, yeah and and I think you know that it's important um, to remember the the limitations of of that statistic. And you know, it, it's I'm not sure it's anybody's fault in particular. You know, the media have to report a a simple number, otherwise people aren't going to know what the hell they're talking about. Mm. the the static The statistics offices have limited resources, you know, and they've got to derive the measures somehow. But sometimes we can get too obsessed with this average, and it's like you know the averages can be very misleading you know we know that averages can be quite misleading and especially if the variance is very high um right so like um so so like um you know say you've got uh the price of the price of freddos has like doubled but the price of dairy milks has stayed the same you know, then you're going to get an average inflation rate, um, assuming they are initially the same price and they're evenly distributed, of 50%, right? Mm. But actually, the price of the Freddo has increased by 100% and the price of the dairy milk hasn't increased at all. So that 50% applies to literally nothing in the basket. It's an average, right? And it's it's almost completely misleading. Now, of course, in practice, you know, there is there is a lot of overlap in the things that we buy. Prices don't necessarily change in quite an, that extreme a way. So the average is useful, but there is a lot of variance, right? And there's variance across like regions, as we mentioned earlier with the with the pint. There's variance between, you know, rich and poor. Um, there's a food campaigner called Jack Monroe, who you may be familiar with, yeah. c- cook slash food campaign slash uh, cook slash author slash poverty campaigner and uh she had a really viral thread on twitter where she looked at like the price of staple goods at asda like pasta and beans and rice and things Mm, and while headline inflation over the past um over the past few years is 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 you know i don't know uh five somewhere between five and ten percent um and like total inflation since say 1990 is something like 65 percent i think um if you look at the price of those staples, you're looking at 
much bigger increases, like hundreds, hundreds of percent, right? Um, and that just shows you that, you know, for uh, a family who are shopping in Asda, you know, to see there has been a 5% or even a 10% rise in inflation in, in the in the news, it just it just doesn't apply to them. You know, it completely misrepresents um, their experience of price increases. So, you know, we've got to be really careful about how, how inflation varies for different people um, because, you know, ultimately it might impact the types of policies that we pursue um, and uh, we might need a richer picture than just the headline statistic. Yeah, that like Jack Monroe's campaign was really, or, or those calculations are really interesting actually of going like actually the like, bougie pasta that you're like that your journalist that's maybe writing about this stuff buys the like you know fancy cardboard box with the like italian presumably writing on it um that's like not gone up as much as the like basics basics pasta which means oh. that yeah it's just got the the inflation has been more um more of a had much more of an impact on those um kind of pe- people that um you know either choose to or, or need to buy um, those sort of value range goods. I think there was something also about how some of those value range goods had just sort of been disappearing. Like there used to be mm. a kind of own brand pasta. I don't know why pasta is the one we've stuck stuck to, but like um, like an own brand pasta and then like a sort of cheap own brand pasta. And I think mm. some of those have also just started to um, disappear uh, entirely. Um, mm. I mean, I, I suppose one point that's maybe worth... Um, hooking onto amid the kind of general conversation about uh you know inflation being something that people on the news whoever they may be seem to be very anxious about and also Mm. the conversation we're having about prices going up is that some inflation is like a good thing right we we like we like to see a a bit of inflation is that correct yeah i mean you know generally speaking so it's worth returning to your original question, which is what what are we talking about when we talk about inflation? Because you could you could say that there's actually two slightly separate types of inflation. Um, there's there's a generalized increase in the prices, which is what I discussed at, uh, at the beginning, where basically essentially the value of a pound goes down. Right, you can buy less with your pound if you're holding literally a pound coin, and you go forward thirty years. In thirty years, that's going to buy you less. Are you looking for a pound coin in your pocket? Yeah, might. This wasn't planned. This wasn't planned. This <laughs> exactly. Coin. So in 30 years time, you know, that's going to be worth less than it's worth now. Um, but when we talk about the current crisis, you know, we're talking about the cost of living crisis. And that can reflect what we were talking about, which is lots of different like kind of idiosyncratic price changes, which affect different groups differently. And it may be that like the kind of generalized inflation that we tend to experience in modern capitalist economies, uh, you know, it's, it's been it's usually about two two percent. Um, that's not actually that's not actually uh, what's going on here. What's going on are direct rises in very important um, items like oil and and uh, oil and gas, for instance, from the Ukraine invasion, and that's what's costing costing families. But those can those can vary across like the income distribution, you know, um, and it might just not quite be the same thing as this generalized increase in the price level. So to answer your question, um, you know, when inflation, that type of inflation, generalized inflation can be a sign of a healthy growing economy. Um, generally speaking, if you've got like an expanding economy, 
uh, is likely to be accompanied by some slight generalized inflation just because businesses, you know, businesses are expanding their operations. People are getting employed. Um, generally speaking, um, you know, incomes are going to go up. And part of that rise in income is going to be like what economists call like a real rise in incomes, right? A real rise in the ability to produce and consume goods and services. While part of that is going to be like inflation. It's just going to be like a nominal rise in in um in in incomes. But so that can be a sign of a healthy growing economy. Uh but yeah, for a start, inflation now is probably too high um to to be a, just a sign of a healthy growing economy like um even if it were generalized but also it is it is very much um concentrated in these quite specific sectors um which are quite clearly having problems and which are quite clearly causing a cost of living crisis for families um so you know addressing these two things may call for completely different policies I was going to say, like, I, I, most people would probably say, I don't feel like I'm in a booming like economy at the moment. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Um, well, of like, course, you get stagflation, right? So you can get you can get uh, declining declining GDP and high and high inflation. Um, so you know, it's not it's not the case that inflation is is always a good thing, but it's just that it if there is a healthy growing economy, you will probably have some low level inflation to go with that. And that's absolutely fine. What we have now is quite clearly not that type of situation. Mm. And like, do like, I guess like, do, uh, do economies ever have the opposite of a, I guess there's, I suppose there's something I've read about a bit with um, like Bitcoin, I guess, mm. is that one of the reasons that it doesn't really, it's never really taken off as like a, currency which is what like initially it was this idea of it's the currency of the future and one of the one of the the things that i've read is about how you know one of the reasons for this is because it um it deflates over time so um the value the 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 buying power of your bitcoin or you know um a millionth of a bitcoin or whatever you've got um goes up over time so of course when you're thinking about like oh should i buy my probably illicit substances with my bitcoin you go um well i won't do it today i'll wait till a week's time because then actually my bitcoin's mm -hmm. gone up in value um yeah so you've not really got the impetus to actually spend it and so it sort of ended up becoming a um commodity rather than a um i don't know if commodity is the right word but it's become a well, it becomes a speculative asset right that mm -hmm. that's what happens right so people buy bitcoin um, so that hoping that the price goes up and they can sell it uh, for more than they bought it for, and then maybe buy more Bitcoin and sell it for more than they bought it for, or or just yeah. cash in. But um, yeah, you know, if you get that type of situation with with actual money, um, he says to annoy all the Bitcoiners. I was going to say, um, you know, inflame some, uh, <laughs> some <money. laughs> with actual money that isn't just uh, for money laundering and speculation. Um, then you uh, then you know. That can happen. Now, it's worth saying that, look, people aren't going to stop buying food because, you know, they think that their money's going to be worth more tomorrow, right? People are going to keep buying, like, food, clothes, you know, shelter, paying their bills. Um, so there is this component of, of spending that's probably not going to be much affected by that. But especially if you're looking at, like, business decisions and investment, mm -hmm. that type of generalized deflation, right, can be can be a really bad thing and th and that's what you saw with like you know the the 1930s and the great depression in the USA as well as elsewhere um when we were tied to the gold standard 
um, or really annoying the, uh, the the Bitcoiners now. But when we retired to the gold standard, right, we, um, you know, we had to we had to had to have this inflation. We didn't really have a, a cho- sorry deflation. We didn't have a choice. Um, and so, yeah, that can really depress investment because business is just thinking, well, I can get more tomorrow. And in terms of investment decisions, you know, it's not necessarily the case that you're going to starve if you don't do it. You can wait a week, a month, a year, right? And then, and then, you know, be able to invest more in real terms while investing the same in nominal terms. And I guess if you can make money with no risk by just holding onto the money, you might well, as well do that rather than exa- investing. Exactly. What's the worst case scenario? Like, yeah, your your money. You know, we were talking about the pound you were holding. If there's inflation, if there's deflation, sorry, then it's going to be worth more. Yeah, good. You've still got it. <laughs> I, should, I, 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 I sort of wish this was an intentionally, and I could have like had it dangling or something, and be like, yeah. <laughs> "What is life like for this pound in the future?" But <laughs> I mean, I never have change anymore, so that was quite lucky. Mm. Um, but like, yeah. So, but so at the moment, people are kind of worried. And and it's been quite an interesting turn because over the past sort of so I guess, sort of since the financial crisis, I'm I'm guessing people have sort of been worried the other way that there's like kind of not that it's been very low and that it's not um, the inflation's just been yeah. super low. Well, th- there was this whole debate over secular stagnation, right? Um, so this was, I think, again, you know, when we're talking about the generalized. Um, success, for want of a better word, of the economy, um, then inflation is often a symptom rather than a cause, right? And it, it seemed like we had like relatively low, you know, real GDP growth for a while after the financial crisis. Um, I think it had actually been declining even even before then. Um, and it seemed like there just wasn't maybe quite enough real growth. There wasn't quite enough um, investment. And uh, there were, you know, if not unemployment, there was unemployment, but there was also like underemployment as well. And, you know, people working in the gig economy or part time work or or just, at, you know, low paid jobs where they weren't happy. Um, so there was this kind of stagnation. Right. And it, it was called secular stagnation. Um, and a, one what part makes, of that makes is it like, secular. Sorry. What? What make what makes it secular? Yeah. Um, Secular, uh, well, just it's just kind of a, a a gradual. So the idea was it was actually predicted. Um, I forget the decade now, but early in the twentieth century, and the idea was that it was this just sort of gradual declining growth okay. that was almost inevitable in um, in 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 sort of mature capitalist economies. Uh, as there are lots of different explanations for this, um, some are more. Um, some are a little bit more like contingent. So some might say, well, you know, we've got too much debt, too much private debt or even public debt, and we need to like get rid of that. And that's what's sort of sucking the life from the economy. Um, others are a little bit less easy to control with policy, like the idea that we've picked all the low hanging fruit of technolo- technological progress. And like there's not, there's only kind of marginal changes now and people always say that, you know, the computer, while it's completely transformed our lives, doesn't seem to have had that great an effect on on productivity and the, and the internet um as well so yeah there, there's there's and then there's like marxist explanations as well right um about like the falling rate of profit and all that so there's lots of different reasons you can give for secular stagnation um but yeah it was just this sort of long-term gradual decline in in growth rates that yeah the financial crisis was like the straw that broke the camel's back 
Um, but maybe it preceded that. Uh, but I do think that, you know, um, the, the performance of the American economy recently, even though it also has high inflation, uh, may have put lie to this because there are some very simple Keynesians like myself who just say, look, the problem is that the government wasn't spending enough money. You know, there wasn't enough private investment, so the government should have stepped in. Um, and then Joe Biden kind of did that. Uh, and then, you know, they've got m much higher um, employment levels and like much higher growth uh, now. So it might have just been, you know, as simple as a, a policy choice. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm not going to take a firm stand on it because I think it's an extremely complicated debate, you know, with all sorts, all sorts of things going on. Hey, I hope you're enjoying my chat with Unlearning Economics. If you are, and you want to check out further episodes of the show, then you might like to know that every single instalment of Induction comes out a full two weeks earlier on my streaming service, Nebula. If you've seen any of my stuff before, then you've perhaps heard of Nebula. It's a premium streaming service built by a bunch of the internet's finest educational creators. Jacob Geller, Not Just Bikes, Maggie Mae Fish, and many, many more, including me. Alongside being ads and algorithm free, Nebula is packed with loads of exclusive content not available anywhere else. For example, I recently really enjoyed the pro shot recording of Abigail from Philosophy Tube's stage play The Prince, a brilliant tale of identity and self-discovery woven using the threads of the plays of William Shakespeare. I was fortunate enough to be able to pop to London to see the show in person, and I think the recorded version does a really great job of capturing the energy of those performances. Further, as I mentioned a moment ago, both the video and audio versions of every single episode of Induction are released on Nebula a full two weeks before they make it to YouTube or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about Nebula, then I'd be super grateful if you'd head to the site by using our special link, nebula.tv forward slash induction. Using that link will ensure you get the absolute best deal for Nebula at any given time. At the moment, that's just $2.50 a month. Further, if you do sign up, it will send a chunk of change my way to help fund more episodes of this show and my main channel videos too. So, if you want to get access to all that great content from your favourite creators, or supporting me to make more good stuff, head to nebula.tv forward slash induction. Now, back to my chat with Unlearning Economics. So, one of the things that uh, I've heard an awful lot about, and maybe you can shed a, a bit more light on as well, is that there's this kind of link between inflation and interest rates. And um, so when you were sort of talking about that 2% figure, I was remembering um, that when I was doing a bit of background for, for this episode, I went on like the Bank of England website, which for anyone watching outside the UK is like the um, central bank of the uh, UK, I guess is like the equivalent of the Federal Reserve. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So and, and they had they have like this web page for inflation that is like uh, inflation is currently 10.5%. And then it would be like, target below two percent which felt quite <laughs> cruel that they have to have like i don't know I, I can't imagine if there's anything in my life where i'd have to have like my goal for the thing written right next to my like my current achievement at like um, always keep your goals moving always like keep I, moving, yeah. I, I don't know i i do like i do quite a bit of running and it'd be quite funny if like as people cross the finish line at a race it had like 
you've run it in like two hours and then it had like your real like bravado at the beginning where you're like i'll do it in like 30 minutes like, yeah. um, <laughs> but um but one of the things the bank of england have been, like have, have said that they're trying to do to bring inflation down is that they are increasing oh. um interest rates i think at the moment they're like four percent i think um this this we are sort of recording ahead of times so they might have uh gone up or down or sideways um uh by this time this comes out uh probably that's your that's your that's da- that's dangerous because we're gonna put this on but um we can edit uh, it out if, uh, if it doesn't happen so <laughs> it'll just go like they're probably gonna go down um, <laughs> but um how how does that work why do they do that what's the like um thing they're trying to do with that yeah so so inflation targeting which is what this is has been um the bank of england's policy since the 90s um and the idea is the idea is pretty straightforward really like you know if you increase interest rates um then what you tend to do is discourage um lending and borrowing um and encourage saving um and and that and that tends so you know the most obvious example for most people is like their mortgage costs right a lot of people have mortgages many of them are directly linked to the interest rate and so they can see yeah when my mortgage costs go up my spending on everything else goes down almost almost as a matter of straight logic right um, so the idea is that by doing that, you kind of dampen spending and you and you dampen demand in the economy. Um, and now, yeah. so there's like a di- direct relationship between like the interest rate that Bank of England or Federal Reserve oh. or like the Le, Le Bank or whatever it's called in France, um, like the, they said it, they put it up one percent, and therefore like um, that means that if you've got a loan, it goes up by probably a similar amount or. A mortgage yeah, right. yeah. I mean, you know, technically, what the what the um, central banks tend to target is like the rate at which banks can borrow reserves, um, okay. whether that's from each other or, or like from the central bank itself, right? So it's like it's not a direct, um, it's not necessarily a direct uh, control. It's not indirect control of the rates that we pay. Yeah, right, they don't have uh, to do that, but yeah. yeah, yeah, they don't have to do that. But it's just an increasing cost that gets passed on. Um, some mortgages are directly tied to to that to the base rate, right? Um, but generally speaking, you know, you increase the costs of of uh, of borrowing for for banks themselves, then they'll pass it on to uh, to consumers. Um, and so, yeah, so that that's that's how that that's how that passes through into the economy. And then, and then that the the sort of knock on effect is hopefully that people go, oh, I was going to yeah. borrow ten grand to buy myself think, a new car. Yeah. Um, inflation, I think. I mean, one one way of thinking about inflation, or at least price rises in specific sectors, is that they're like signs of a shortage, right? So that means that there's too much demand relative to supply, relative to how much is available. Um, so what they're doing, right, by reducing the spending of households. Um, and maybe of businesses as well, by the way, who also have to borrow, of course. Um, what they're trying to do is reduce that demand side. So it's like, you know, there's only, uh, you know, there's, there's only, let's say there's only uh, a million cars available in, in the UK, right? Uh, just for simplicity. Um, and, you know, yet uh, 1.5 million people want them. 
But then if you increase interest rates, then those, you know, 500,000 of those 1.5 million people say, oh, wait a minute, I don't think I can afford a car anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they reduce, they, they, they eliminate that from their spending or they, they spend it on something else um, that's a bit cheaper. And therefore, you've got like supply, the quantity supplied and the quantity demanded imbalance again, right? So that's a kind of, that's a very mm-hmm. idealized version of what happens. But they just, if there's not enough to go around, um, then they try to, uh, you know, reduce the demand for it so that demand and supply are in balance. And, you know, if demand and supply are in balance, then prices are less likely to go up because if there's no excess demand or if there is excess demand, then um, businesses will raise prices to, you know, as a way of rationing, right? Prices are a rationing device. So as a way of rationing it to people who are willing and or able to pay more. Um, but once you eliminate that mismatch, then the price rises are likely to uh, slow or, or disappear over time. So too many people want and can afford Friday Frogs, and that is what has caused Friday Frogs to exactly. go up in price. Yeah, yeah. We all need to curtail our, our Fredo consumption. Um, we, can, well, we, can, we can no yeah. longer take out loans to buy because the interest rate has gone up. So we no, can no longer take out a loan to buy Fredo Frogs, and therefore, <laughs> yeah. therefore the 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 and the price. Yeah. Um, I can't max out my credit card on Fredo Frogs anymore because because uh, interest rates are too high. Uh, but you know, it's worth saying there is so there is another way of thinking about this, right? Because I mentioned the demand and the supply side, right? So this is a really big issue in the pandemic. Um, it's in many cases the supply side that has been affected, right? It's not like people really want suddenly wanted to buy more stuff. I don't think there was really a massive spike in demand, maybe a temporary one following the pandemic because of kind of repressed demand when everything was locked down. But that doesn't seem to be the problem. The problem seems to be that like supply chains um, and now, of course, oil, which we can talk about, um, was so massively affected by these huge disruptions that we weren't actually producing it. And, you know, we have had and have, um, you know, uh, queues at ports, you know, just we had like cargo ships queuing up in uh, in docks you know unable to actually deliver the goods you know that's a, in my opinion right and this is why i think the bank of england and all the other other central banks are wrong to do this uh to increase interest rates that's a supply driven shortage right so you need to be looking at these bottlenecks that have emerged um and maybe raising interest rates will have some some effect but it, it also during a cost of living crisis is quite it increases costs for a lot of families which i think is completely perverse but we're we're looking at something that's been driven in my opinion mostly by a retraction of the supply side so you know if you were looking at freddos right over time both of these factors play in um but there will have been rises in costs and that will have been why um why cadbury's eventually sort of gave in and had to increase the price from 10p to to 15p because they probably thought well you know, I, I don't have access to their Freddo accounts, um, but I would expect that at one point they might even have been making a loss on it. So again, that was probably supply driven as much as it was demand driven. And I think most of the inflation we see now is is supply driven. Because I have seen like quite widespread the argument that, you know, the reason that inflation has gone up is because, you know, during the pandemic, you know, the US government gave out stimulus checks and the UK government did like, um, the furlough scheme, um, which the argument sort of holds less there because that was 
people getting the same amount of money, but like right. that then people had more money and they, you know, the doors were, you know, we were set free from lockdowns yeah. and from just the general sort of malaise of COVID, I guess. And we all went out and we bought cars and Freddos and like that. And like, that's the reason um, that, you know, that, that we've got too much money. We're too lucky. We're too, um, but you're sort of suggesting that that is not, like you see it that it's the, cause I, cause I think I've heard this kind of distinction between uh-huh. The demand side inflation, where like that, you know, that that might be, you know, the, the scenario where that would be the case, and that mm. kind of supply side. So you're saying that, in your in your uh, humble opinion, that it is like that it is the that, that it's more that stuff can't get to us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, I think the stimulus checks sent by Biden, in particular, which would actually came after lockdown was lifted and after the pandemic was, you know, air quotes over. Um, but th- those maybe, maybe they had an impact on inflation. You know, it was a big boost to demand at a time when supply was quite constrained. Um, I know they helped a lot of people out. Maybe inflation is a price worth paying, but I don't think it was major. And, you know, that narrative, um, I mean, there's an interesting report by uh, Joe Stiglitz, the economist uh, for the Roosevelt Institute, where he looks at some of the macroeconomic indicators for this, like how much did consumption actually change following all of this? You know, was it clear that demand was much higher than it had been in in previous years before the coronavirus pandemic? Um, and it just seems that 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 it wasn't right. It, the the demand driven story doesn't match kind of a basic sense check against the macroeconomic evidence, and it just completely ignores things like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, you know. Mm. Um, inflation was like 5% in the UK uh, before that, right? Which is high, higher than we're used to. And people were already calling it the cost of living crisis. But then, you know, since, since Russia invaded invaded Ukraine, it's gone up by, by a further four percentage points, right? It's almost doubled from where it was before. Um, so you, you can't explain that with this kind of pure um, anti-government stimulus uh, narrative, I don't think. And the the like uh, kind of argument that is suggesting that it is supply side inflation would be that that cost of fuel going up has just increased the cost of making anything. I guess is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, Isabella Weber, um, an economist who I who I really like, she she recently released a paper on um, what she and her co-authors, uh, whose names escape me, call uh, systemically important sectors, right, um, and you know, oil and gas are number one, right? Mm-hmm. Of course they are, right? Because they, they're they used for energy. So they're used in like most industries, uh, you know, either directly or just via the fact that those industries use energy. They're also used by households, right? Um, so they have like this direct hit on inflation because, you know, if you have a car and you buy petrol, you experience that as a direct rise in your cost of living. But they also have all these indirect effects uh, through everything, like you said, basically. Mm. Um, So, you know, if you were to pick one thing, and this happened in the 70s, right, as well, if you were to pick one thing uh, that would have the biggest impact on inflation, it would probably be oil and and other other fossil fuels uh, and gas, especially, uh, because, because they're just so interconnected with the rest of the economy. And I think our understanding of inflation and how it spreads throughout an economy in the future needs to move beyond like this kind of, well, inflation goes up, interest rates go up, inflation goes down, and vice versa. 
Um, and I think we need to be looking at like what are these systemically important sectors, and we need to be thinking about how policy can you know either manage those sectors, monitor them, um, consider alternatives. Right. I mean, so one of my favorite examples of this for a modern approach on how to manage inflation or how not to manage it. In 2013, you may remember, uh, Tom and Georgia, that uh, David Cameron ordered the civil service to cut all the green crap. Um, yes, yeah, vaguely. Um, so he he was he was trying to cut like so. Even then, people were talking about how fuel costs were too high, and he was like, "Well, I know what's going on in the energy sector. We've invested too much in this green nonsense, um, and uh, and uh, we need to cut it." Right now, always uh, kind of low low hanging fruit with UK bills because we sort of the green levy is sort. So yeah, anyone sort of listening outside the UK, I think the the green levy is like on our bills as individuals. So it sort of is something that you can say that like that like you, the taxpayer, are paying Mm. rather than it being paid like in some way by the energy companies, you know, in within their kind of taxation. Um, Because I think that's often something that is quite a, 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 a sort of clever way that people that don't like sort of the idea of subsidizing new green energy um, can sort of, you know, can point to it as having a really direct effect on us. Um, yeah, of course. And it was increasing costs for families in that sense in the short term, you know, uh, if, if it's a levy, then it does. But the, the think tank uh, Carbon Brief basically calculated, and this was in January 2022, by the way, they calculated that because we hadn't switched to, uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't maintained these policies, which were, by the way, things like insulating homes, um, expanding wind, uh, wind power, uh, installing solar panels, uh, you know, all of, all of the standard uh, green measures. Um, because we hadn't kept these, it was costing each family, each household, sorry, Fifty pounds a year um, in energy bills, and then Russia invaded Ukraine, and they tripled their estimate because obviously the price of oil and gas had gone up so much, and we didn't have these. You know, we were having to use more because our homes were less uh, well fitted to insulate and to retain the heat, and also because um, we didn't have renewable sources of energy. So now the costs. You know, now oil has more of an impact on the economy than it would which is magnified massively by by the invasion um now households uh, are paying more than they would be and um we have less green energy sources right okay so it's all contributing to climate change of course in the background um so you know that that was a good example of like the kind of forward thinking that you need to to manage uh, inflation over the long term i think you need like clever investment into certain sectors uh, and that requires like a level of industrial policy and interventionist government. I think that, you know, a lot of people aren't really much of a fan of. But, you know, uh, I think with the with the recent with recent events, you can make a, a case based on, you know, any number of things, whether it's, you know, the costs faced by families, whether it's national security, whether it's the environment, um, you can you can make this case. So I think we need to be making that case much more strongly. I've I've been making a, a video about um like energy privatization uh, which will pr- probably be out by the time that this episode's out um oh, wow. and uh, it's been really interesting to think about it in those ways like like there is a there is like I I keep coming back to the idea that there is even a case for um having some kind of 
um, public ownership of um, energy infrastructure um, or, you know, whichever bits of it you you think maybe we bring into and whatever, you know, whether you do it on a local government level or probably in a smaller country like the UK, probably at a sort of more central level. Um, but like there is a sort of pro-business argument for that because it is, like you're saying, like just so essential to like anything happening um uh-huh. that um that yeah if we had sort of had the the foresight to really think about you know having such a big reliance on gas or um not investing more in um renewables um to reduce our reliance on that then you know the uk might not have been hit quite so um badly by um uh, the the price hikes in oil and gas since um yeah. the invasion of ukraine um that's really interesting what you're talking about like and that, we, that we do relatively badly as well it's worth saying you know i know this cost of living crisis slash inflation is is a global thing right that's very very clear uh but we do do relatively badly on inflation you know it's 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 higher than a lot of other countries and we have uh a sort of long you know decades of austerity chronic underinvestment in the things that matter um we also have uh you know brexit obviously uh to open up another can of worms which you know in terms of if you want to talk about queues at ports um and bottlenecks then you know <laughs> brexit's definitely contributed to that um so you know we've although it's a global crisis we've managed to uniquely position ourselves to be one of the most exposed uh rich economies which is quite impressive yeah, like, 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 no, you know, like, go, go, Britain. We've really, really knocked this one out of the park. Coming from a position of relative advantage as well, you know, like just being, being, you know, in, in sort of 2010, I would say we probably had an opportunity to, you know, make these kinds of long term investments and really, uh, you know, shore ourselves up against a, a fairly uncertain future and change direction. But uh, we, we skillfully chose not to. Mm, yeah like i i i've had a couple i've got a couple of work trips this year that which involve going abroad and like it is really noticeable and i suppose that's as much an exchange rate thing as well but i don't maybe that sort of reflects these things but um it's really noticeable how like everything seems really expensive in other countries in a way wow. that it maybe didn't feel quite such a jump before um and that largely being as a result of our economy having just sort of not done anything for for quite a long time yeah i can't somebody there was there was a viral tweet that i thought was quite funny maybe it's only funny to economists but it said something like uh uh, i appreciate whoever's trying to simplify things by making one pound equal one usd equal (laughs) one euro uh which i mean we've gone back up since liz truss's government you know (laughs) fell apart uh you know it's is but it's it's got it's definitely gotten gotten worse um and you just yeah you get less for your pound and that's partly because of just the terrible performance of the uk economy i mean we're just getting into me ranting about the tories now but you know (laughs) i suppose i suppose to to sort of look ahead a little bit in terms of what inflation might look like in the near future um you you were suggesting that some of the forecasts i've seen at least have um suggested it's going to start to um ease off that that we might have either hit a peak i think the us as um you're suggesting has already peaked mm. the uk we might might sort of hit a peak and then it might ease off towards um 
the end of uh, the year. Um, how is that going to sort of change people's lives, the economy, etc., as as it does start to hopefully drift back towards those more kind of stable, lower amounts of inflation? Yeah, I mean, you know, the rise in interest rates will have an impact through through uh, reducing demand. I mean, it's my opinion that this is way too steep and too much, and you know, almost. It, it, it gets rid of the disease of inflation by killing the patient. I think the uh, increasing interest rates, especially by a lot and very quickly. Um, but I do think that's going to have an impact. I think there's evidence that some of these bottlenecks, supply chain short- shortages, are kind of uh, sorting themselves out because you know you're talking about real physical problems, right? You're talking about like the logistics of the thing, and you know, given sufficient time businesses will manage to sort those things out. Businesses and workers will manage to sort those things out among themselves. And I think there's some evidence that, that, those, are, that those are abating as well. Um, as, far as, as far as fossil fuels go, the war in Ukraine, I don't, I don't see that abating, to be honest. Um, I, you know, I, don't, I can't say I follow the Ukraine war really closely, but I do follow it, and it seems like quite a stalemate. Um, I don't, I think... You know, we're trying to shift towards other sources of energy, um, by which I mean still probably fossil fuels, but because we've like reopened coal plants and stuff, but you know, non-Russian sources of energy. So you might see over the medium term some of these costs come down. But I, I think that's gonna stay high for a while. I mean, you could I look, I hope I'm wrong. Um yeah. But I think that component. I'm not asking you to try and predict the outcome, the future trajectory of a major sort of global conflict. (laughs) But yeah, I I do think you know, I do think people. I I think inflation. There was there was this big debate, right? Team permanent versus team transitory, which you might maybe remember, or maybe it was just an economist debate. But uh, I'm afraid that does sound like one of those things that's like that's like a whole world within. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was, it's kind of self-explanatory, right? Can you explain it in twilight terms of like Team Jacob? (laughs) Yeah, I'll try. Yeah. uh, What is it? Jacob, who's the other one in twilight? Um, uh, Jacob, I think is the wolf and Edward is is the vampire. Yeah, I think, Uh, I think Edward, I think, I think, yeah, I think Edward is probably team permanent and Jacob's team transitory. But um, so yeah, like that team transitory just saying, you know, inflation is driven by these short-term bottlenecks. Um, a temporary perhaps increase in demand following COVID and the stimulus, but it's going to go down over the next one or two years as these things sort themselves out. Team Permanent saying, no, it's much more embedded. It's more like the generalized inflation that we were talking about right throughout this. Uh, Everything's going up in price. Um, And uh, yeah, I think Team Transitory were right. I've always been Team Transitory um, on the internet, if you say something like that. People never tire of helpfully reminding you that you were team transitory and saying inflation is still high. But it's like people have such short attention spans now that they seem to think that, like, you know, a lot of time has passed when actually it hasn't. Um, You know, if you're talking about the onset of the cost of living crisis towards the end of 2021, I think, you know, two years on from that. Uh, you're going to see a lot of these components of inflation have subsided. And, you know, that's going to be a really good thing for a lot of families. You know, I I think I do think we're in the heat of the cost of living crisis now. I think that, you know, it's hitting it's hitting so, so many people so hard. Um, I do think it's likely that it's peaking, you know, in absence of another of something else horrible happening, which I I really hope it doesn't. Um, 
So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic, but I do think we need to be more aggressive on the energy angle because I just, you know, we're so reliant on Russia for, for these fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are bad, by the way, to underscore that point anyway, no matter where they're from. Um, so I just really think we need to be thinking, be much more aggressive about, about alternatives to that to try and like help people. <clears throat> And I suppose, like, I suppose there's probably, in terms of, like, the effects on um, people maybe may, may listening, if, if anyone decides to listen to this this podcast that we're working on, um, uh, <laughs> the, like, what, the two things that I've heard um, a lot about as things that it could potentially have a really big impact on, um, the, the first is wages that we've seen a lot of, um, and in the UK, we what we've seen is a lot of the more well-unionized sectors have really mm. noticed, like, Oh wait, inflation's ten percent, and you're suggesting you're being really generous, giving us like a two percent, like five percent pay rise. Um, that that means we're still getting a pay cut in like real terms. Yeah. Um, and then the other one's housing, but maybe, um, yeah. And the other one, the, the other one's housing is that that there was a sort of prediction for a little while that um you know inflation was going up a lot and that people were gonna that people that have mortgages were gonna come to the bit where they have to renew their mortgage and it's gonna be like loads more expensive um and that there's gonna be a big crash in that housing market because um they're not gonna be able to afford to renew their um, mortgage and they're gonna have to sell the house and then prices are gonna go down and um i mean do do you foresee uh, you know without asking you to like Carve, carve a prediction about what might happen in st- in stone um do, do, do you do you think the the will continues to be a big impact on the um ho- housing sector at all yeah i mean house prices have started to to go to go down in the uk right um so there there already seems to be a bit of an impact uh and you know i do think that mortgage costs are you know going to continue to go up i think the bank of england's overshot with the interest rate rises, you know, I keep harping on about how much I don't approve of them. Um, but they, I, I think they're very much you know, the baddie of this podcast. Yeah. If inflation co- comes down, then, um, then, 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 uh, you know, they'll realize that they've overshot and they might decrease interest rates fairly quickly, but the hit for people who, you know, who are affected by this, uh, through housing costs, most directly mortgage holders, but also renters, um, because landlords often pass it on, uh, that you know that that is going to continue to be felt for a while after inflation itself has subsided. And I mean, you know, is you actually, I think there's something that's really worth saying here, right? Which is that, and it's raised by the point you made about unions, because inflation is always, you know, a distributional conflict, right? It's about the spoils of economic output, um, and when that all goes horribly wrong, you get a wage price spiral. Right, which is what we had in the seventies. Workers demand higher wages. Businesses increase prices. They can't come to an agreement. Uh, you get you get this this spiral. Inflation goes up. It affects everybody badly. Um, we've heard like we've heard a lot of like sort of I don't know. There's fear mongering, but like we've heard yeah. a lot of like warnings. I guess about like oh well, if if wages go up, there's going to be a wage price spiral. Like I've heard that loads. Yeah, of uh, yeah. I, I think. Yeah, there's no evidence of wages aren't even going up, like for a start. But I think also people people get confused. Like we've we've entered this horrible world where a wage increase is considered the same as a wage price spiral. 
And it's like, no, if it's a spiral, right, it's going up at an increasing rate. It's not just an increase in wages to keep up with the cost of living, right? So, so that they're completely different things, right? We're talking about like derivatives, right? We're talking about the level versus the rate of change. They're two different things. Um, so that is exactly what you call it, is fear-mongering. Uh, there's no evidence for that. Um, but I think what the unionized sectors are seeing is that workers are better able to demand their fair share of the output. Um, because ultimately, how inflation is experienced by different groups, which goes back to what we were talking at the beginning, depends on the relative price rises, the relative, relative, the relative, the relative wage rises, right? Um, and and uh, you know, if you have really disempowered labour, which we have had for a long time, then you're good. Then labour workers um, uh, and are going to are going to be shafted, right? Um, and businesses are going to be able to, you know, maybe in, increase prices or at least maintain low wage levels, uh, and you know, therefore the spoils of economic output go to them. So, I mean, Oliver Blanchard, who's like a really mainstream economist um, and, and like very well respected, he basically, you know, acknowledged this quite recently. He was like, "Yeah, look, the best the best solution for inflation." would be if we could somehow get everybody around the table, right, and agree to like a set path of like wage rises, price rises, right, that didn't completely shaft anybody, but that kept things from spiraling out of control and the relationship between labor and capital from, you know, um, getting, you know, uh, deteriorating, right, and that resulting in a wage price spiral. So that type of distributional conflict is really important. I mean, I was on strike. I'm on strike technically now, by the way. Um, at my university so I'm not doing any university work on Wednesday I was uh, physically on strike as in I attended the teachers rally last week which yeah. higher implication was also involved in um, and, and and that's just that's literally just battling to have your pay keep pace with inflation yeah. you know it's not a wage price spiral it's it, it's a different thing um, and I think you know we need to to give people these kinds of these kinds of increases uh, so that they can actually afford things. So it's pretty straightforward, in my opinion. Mm, yeah, because yeah, because if, if people can't afford things, we probably get into a a slightly different problem, I guess. Um, uh, but mm. yeah, no. So yeah, I mean, we we are also recording an episode uh, with uh, Zoe B, whose videos you might know, yeah. um, who is uh, who. Uh, did, did a lot of work as a kind of instructor in uh, US um, universities. We're doing a an episode about like casualization in um, academia as well. Oh um, wow! Okay. So yeah. So uh, what what day of so eighteen days isn't it in of of UCU action? Um, we're in day two. Day two of, of we're in day two. Yeah. Um. I I can't remember the whole strike timetable off by heart, but it is at least one day per week for like eight weeks. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's really because I I I was UCU and um, while while I was in university mm. uh, while I was um sort of teaching whilst doing my PhD and we did sort of you know it was the day occasionally uh, but the the sheer like number of days at the moment and then that sort of spread throughout different unions as well. There's been like quite a significant amount of um uh action over. I don't know what we're calling this part in in the UK. Like last summer was hot strike summer. I don't know what um. Uh, what this spring is, uh, what like name it's getting? Um, but, cold uh, strike winter, would be <laughs> un unimaginative. Uh, um, late, late winter, late late winter. Yeah, I don't know. It's really cold at the moment. Um, but yeah, 
<laughs> I'm not sure. Someone will probably come up with a better name for it than that. Um, but but no, um, you know, g- g- good good luck on that uh, strike action. Hope- hopefully, this will be one of those things where it's like this was recorded early, and by the time it went out, uh, demands have been met, and that the, the uh, vice chancellors have agreed to uh, to 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 uh, sort of those those demands. But um, absolutely, they- I mean, you know, it's not it's worth stating this is slightly orthogonal to our to our point right uh in this podcast but people don't like going on strike <laughs> I, don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like going on strike i don't get paid i don't get any work done um and like you know what i mean i, I don't want to be on strike i want there to be fairly basic changes and by changes i mean like maintaining the existing real wages maintaining you know the existing pensions not allowing them to be eroded not allow not gutting them right it's not even like we're actually demanding anything other than to just almost stay still um so you know i hope we don't go on strike everybody at my university is like i really hope we don't go on strike for this long mm. because because like it yeah. it's going to ruin half of my course right you know yeah. it's like the whole term so you know it's, it's people really don't want to do this but they they're being forced to Thanks so much for listening to my chat with Unlearning Economics. I hope you've learned a little bit of something about inflation that you didn't know before you started listening to the episode. As I mentioned partway through the show, if you want to check out further episodes of Induction, then there's no better way to do so than through my premium streaming service, Nebula. So if you want to get exclusive early access to every single episode of the show a full two weeks before they're available anywhere else and support me to make them at the very same time, then you can do so by heading to nebula.tv forward slash induction. Thanks so much for listening once again, and I'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode of the show.